1: We've all forgotten the nice thing. Was it me or were 16 kids killed? More than were killed in 9-11. A few weeks later, no one really cared. I, I think why people don't think about these things, literally do the exercise. Pick somebody who jumped out of the towers at 9-11 or pick one of the kids in Nice, or what you know, one of the hapless people who went to the Batek one. And, and think about it for a minute and a half properly. You will freak out. It's almost unendurable.
2: Hello, welcome back to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Robert McLean-Wilson. Robert,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hello there.
2: Robert, I want to kick off by asking you about how charlie hebdo is currently seen in france now you are uh, as an irish times headline described you in 2015 you are the irish guy who writes for charlie hebdo uh, that's how you're that's how you're known um in in many parts of the world and of course charlie hebdo is fascinating to people around the world for a very obvious reason for because of something very dark that happened there um 8 years ago I wanted to get a sense for you, to, just to kick things off, what is it like now with Charlie Hebdo in France and in Paris? Is it now just back to being a normal magazine? It's just on the shop shelves? Do people still talk about what happened in 2015? Does that event cast a shadow over Charlie Hebdo and France more broadly? How, how do things stand in relation to, to that magazine that you've written so much for?
1: Well, um, do you ever go into the office yourself? I do
2: sometimes, yeah, every now and then. Is it a bunker? <laughs> no, thankfully not.
1: Does it have armed guards with really big machine guns? No. No. So it's still, I mean, it's still that. Uh, the address is secret, even the LV Small is secret. And there, there are, I I think now at the minute, the five members of the staff who have permanent police protection and um, you know, so when they leave the office, they're still protected. So, I mean, it's by no means normal. But in terms of its life as a magazine, it's settled down in the sense that the, the sales have gone way down from seven millions, um, obviously, uh, in that few weeks after the attack in 2015. Um, and it's kind of taken its old status, which is the, the ill-informed discourse in the English-speaking left, that Charlie is racist or, you know, extreme, isn't only confined, in a sense, to, to the UK or America. I mean, there are some people here who have never read Charlie who will say kind of the same thing. Why don't they leave Muslims alone? Ignoring the fact that they attack the Catholic Church more than they attack anybody. They attack the far right more than they attack even the Catholic Church. You know, and some people are quite offended by... I think, the approach of of the cartoonist. No one's ever offended by what's actually written um, because people who want to object never bother to read the text. It's the safest thing to be in the world, actually, as a writer for Charlie Hebdo, because no one's going to shoot you because no one's read it. Um, When the cartoons really go for it, sometimes it is. Even I find it. I struggle sometimes with how very rude it is um, and how very kind of aggressive and infantile and extreme, but I very rarely would feel uncomfortable in a sense, I think it's bad faith. There's all there's almost always a thesis behind it. There was one moment. Yeah, I I slept with Charlie once twice a year. I disappeared for a couple of months because they've annoyed me or or something's gone too far. And at one point after an earthquake in Italy, a cartoonist had had done a cartoon and um, all people squashed in between a collapsed building. The writing on the cartoon was, you know, modern lasagna. And it was an attempt to satirize the, the corruption of the Italian building industry. But it, it was just mean. It was just, it was, whatever the intent was, it really missed the boat by a long way. And Charlie very rarely does that. They get more shit for, for being mean about uh, the president of Turkey, Erdogan, than they do for anything they say about uh, ordinary Muslims in France. They're great backers of ordinary Muslims in France. who are also victims of extreme religious ideology.
2: That's that's a good kicking off point. And uh, I, I've written in defense of Charlie Hebdo many times over the years. Um, I think the misunderstanding of it, particularly in the UK, is just, it gets ridiculous at times because people obviously don't, even try to understand it. They just have this caricatured vision of it as a racist Islamophobic magazine written by a bunch of um, white French idiots. That's basically how it's seen. Um, But there have been times at which even I've balked at the covers and even while writing a defence of their freedom to publish them, of course, uh, one that stuck in my mind was, I think, after the 2015 uh, massacre in Paris, when they had a front cover of a man drinking champagne, and the champagne was flying out of the bullet holes in his body. And um, it was very much an anti-terrorist, anti-extremist cover, but it was such a a jarring image and and, a very eye-catching image, but one which made you catch your breath before you even could sit down to write a defense of their right to publish
1: it. Absolutely. I mean, in a sense, it's literally an, an attack because they stick to a tradition of cartooning, which was basically 18th century English. William Hogarth, whom people think of as kind of art, was incredibly harsh and vulgar and aggressive in his Gin Lane cartoons, satirizing, he wasn't satirizing the London poor, he was satirizing the fact that uh, conditions of life in an urban center, which had Britain had just basically invented the modern city, there was an infrastructure of in the countryside, the ghettos were full to overflowing, and everyone was off their tits and gins. And it produced a massive social crisis of child poverty, infant mortality, and all of that. And his, his cartoons from the time are incredibly hard to look at even now. So they do that attacking thing always. And the biggest, the biggest threats, actually, this is so ridiculous, that anyone there faced after one of the other attacks was actually Coco. Uh, one of the few women cartoonists who did a, a non-funny cartoon, a, a quite a beautiful little thing, just of um, multicolored lines sparking up into the air, fireworks after the Nice attack, which was during a fireworks event. And underneath, she wrote only one word, which was Nice. But in Russia and Germany, <laughs> people read that in English. Nice. And she, got, she had death threats for a month.
2: Uh, yes, no, I think that's right. And uh, there is one particular cartoon cover that I did want to ask you about in relation to Charlie Hebdo, which you've spoken about before, including to Andrew Doyle on his um, Old Spike podcast, which was the um, Meghan Markle cover, which I thought was just very brilliant and very clever, uh, but it caused a huge controversy. So this was when Meghan Markle was having... Her troubles with Buckingham Palace, and they did an image of uh, the Queen with her knee on Meghan Markle's neck. So obviously, reminiscent of the uh, killing of George Floyd. Um, it was denounced as racist. It, pretty high up officials and activists and politicians here in the UK denounced it as racist, but it just wasn't racist, was it? I mean, that was that was another example of a profound misunderstanding of what Charlie Hebdo says and how it operates.
1: Well, I, I think that it's not a misunderstanding, I, and actually, I kind of slightly hate myself for even even having talked about it. It is so obviously not racist that you need bad faith to accuse it of being so. It is both marking the George Floyd death and also comparing what was seen at the time as this mistreatment of a, a black American woman as equivalent as. Along the journey of racist expression, so to say, yeah, yeah, it's really racist. Means you, either you're an idiot or you're lying. I mean, it's absolutely binary. There, there can be no conflation here, and that's not really worthy of a of a response. I think. I mean, no, no one sensible or no one sincere is going to imagine it. I I would have some respect for people who, who feel. What the hell are the French doing making fun of the British? Or people who love the royal family going, oh, don't be mean about the Queen or Prince Charles. Because um, at least that's sincere. But saying it's racist is bollocks. It's the same kind of bad face that happened immediately after the Charlie attack, when the New Yorker in particular ran a piece by a little asshole who I'm not going to name, who uh, a Nigerian-American who doesn't speak French, who wrote this Brilliantly expert article on how extraordinarily racist Charlie was, using an image of Christiana Tabira, who was the um, a, a justice minister at the time, uh, uh, depicted as a monkey in Charlie Hebdo, and that was true. Uh, but they removed the legend, they removed the writing underneath because what the, the cartoon was was a reference to a cartoon in a viciously right-wing magazine called Vela Actuelle which was literally treating Christiana Tibera as a monkey. So you see that image without the text, and you think, yeah, yeah, wow, that's incredibly racist. And they forget to mention that two weeks later, that same woman gave two speeches at two of the funerals and went to another one because she was friends with the people in Charlie Hebdo, a great admirer of the cartoonist who did that cartoon.
2: Hello, everyone. It's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. I just want to let you all know that there are still a few signed copies left of Brendan's new book, A Heretic's Manifesto. And the only way to get your hands on one of them is by donating £50 or more to Spiked. You'll be able to secure a signed copy of a brilliant book. Plus, you'll be supporting our work here at Spiked at the same time. You'll also get a whole year's access to Spiked supporters, which is our online donor community, Membership is usually £50 for the year anyway, so all in all, it's a hell of a deal. To make your donation, claim your signed copy and claim your Spiked supporters membership. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. Thank you so much, and now on with the show. Yeah, I mean it, it is incredible. The dishonesty, and as you say, it's not even misunderstanding. There's a wicked element to some of this misrepresentation of Charlie Hebdo and what it stands for. Um, you mentioned there the arseholes who and their response to the massacre of 2015. And I did want to ask you about some of those arseholes and the general response and what it might tell us about um contemporary Western culture and especially our belief in freedom of speech. You will remember better than anyone that. Even though there was an initial outburst of um, Je suis Charlie across the world, including from politicians and leading um, newspapers and so on, it did fizzle out fairly quickly. And there were some horrendous incidents like those high-flying novelists who complained about PEN America giving a bravery award to Charlie Hebdo. Here in the UK, um, the Islamic Human Rights Commission gave their Islamophobe of the Year award to Charlie Hebdo just a few weeks after they were shot in their offices, which was completely repugnant and uh, unsurprisingly didn't cause much controversy here amongst the liberal media. And there were many other instances where people went from saying just we Charlie basically to saying, well, you know, maybe it shouldn't punch down so much. Maybe it shouldn't pick on Muslims. If it stopped doing that, it wouldn't have these problems. What did you make of that? Were you surprised by that? Or do you think it was a, an expected response in these rather illiberal times?
1: Well, I, I would say to the 200 odd um writers who signed that letter against Charlie, well, they can obviously kiss my arse for the rest of time. I cordially invite them. I'll even wash it first. Um, People got on the wrong side of something very quickly, and it wasn't always because of bad faith. Everyone suddenly seemed to speak French and to have read 25 years of Charlie Hebdo, despite the fact they didn't speak speak French and had never read it. And actually, even the verb to read it was an interesting one because people were talking about cartoons. It's like they were damning the Guardian for Martin Rousin. You know, that 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 would seem like a bizarre thing to do. But <sighs> there were people who were clearly sincere, troubled, um perhaps not really aware of anglophone anglo-saxon traditions of cartooning which have always been extremely in your face and and harsh it's not all the new yorker little cutesy uh, dentist waiting room jokes Uh, but the, the presumption that you could make a confident remark about something written in a language you do not at all speak is bewildering to me i i tend to be you know, if, some, if someone occasionally in my life as a writer, you find that someone in Poland or, or Germany has written something about you, and I would tend to be modest about reacting too quickly to that because I don't know what they're saying. I have no idea. I don't even know, generally speaking, whether it's good or bad. And if you don't speak the language, it would take you years to develop a capacity to understand nuance and irony. Comedy is the hardest thing. The moment you realize you speak a language well is when you make someone laugh intentionally. And that went out the window. There was no subtlety at all. And also the punching down thing was invented five minutes ago. What the fuck is that? Were they, were they, were they talking about punching down uh, when Jonathan Swift was writing a modest proposal? Literally a recipe book for eating Irish babies during the famine. Was he punching down? the greatest single satirical work in the history of satire, with a guy unbuttoned and went full bore. It's an incredibly tasteless and ill-advised thing to do. And nothing exposed the casual and echoless cruelty of the moment, as well as that viciously harsh spoof. What, how do you solve the Irish famine? Send them recipe books to cook their babies brilliant awful but brilliant
2: absolutely i couldn't agree more and in fact i wanted to press you a little bit on the issue of punching down just to try and work out what this actually means because i had two responses i had so many discussions about punching down after the charlie hebdo massacre um i hadn't heard the phrase very much before i'm not sure i'd heard it at all suddenly it was suddenly it was everywhere it was falling from everyone's mouth um and i had two responses the first was well you know, if we're talking about making fun of Muhammad and Islam, this is a big world religion with a billion adherents. It's not some small little thing. Uh, But then more to the point, I thought, well, why shouldn't people punch down or sideways or, or up or wherever they want to punch? Surely there's an element in satire where... Yes, you satirised powerful, and, and Swift's um, uh, a Modest Proposal, as you say, was a stinging rebuke against some of the um, cruelties and carelessness of the famine era. But satire is also about satirising different parts of society, not just the powerful parts. Uh,
1: and also it revealed, certainly in the United Kingdom, well, in America as well, a, a certain delicacy or finesse about how to speak about those you... you Considered in a weaker position than you, or less sophisticated than you, because we just had a decade and a half of chav in the UK, and maybe maybe Will Self wouldn't say chav, but he would definitely say chavtastic. It was all right; it was fine to make fun of the white working class. The only racial slur left in America is white trash, mm. which has never been replaced by trailer trash. You can still say white trash, and. The contempt that that reveals is is very interesting because it's literally unconscious. People don't realize that they're guilty of a logical fallacy. I won't say this or that about this group that I perceive to be disadvantaged, but about this really very large group that is equally disadvantaged, I will give them both barrels very comfortably because everybody I like does it, so it's all right. Yeah, There's a little bit of herd think. But there's a lot of the new form of anti-racism. I remember when anti-racism in the 90s was quite an easy gig because you didn't need to do it that much because political correctness had been an extremely successful cultural movement. It wasn't a political movement. It was a cultural one, and it meant... That there were certain things that certain people could no longer say, and that wasn't because they would be condemned or sacked, it was because everyone would stand and laugh at them. they would be going seriously now in nineteen ninety five you're saying that I mean it would be ridiculous so that anti-racism that tended to be expressed at that time was it was it tended to be very serious, very genuine, tackling real issues whereas. A lot of left wing anti racism now, with my experience in France, seems to be not about not wanting to be racist, but not wanting to be seen as racist. And that is not at all the same thing. My God, that's not the same thing. And I've been, I speak good French, but I I speak it with a heavy British kind of accent. So my journey into fluency has been marked by something that I would not have experienced otherwise, where if I'm at a festival of French writers and everyone's sitting around a table getting drunk, they will look at me and they perhaps they don't know me very well, but they'll think, first of all, this guy's not really going to understand. Or secondly, he doesn't know anyone. So I can unbutton, I can loosen up and say things and it's not going to play with this guy. Except I did understand. And what these incredibly left-wing writers, some of whom were famous almost uniquely for their uh, stance on racial equality and writing books wonderfully about it, would say these remarkably racist things in front of me, just astounding, which no right-wing racist would ever dare do. But in their cups, because I was like a little dog who didn't really understand the drunk master... And it immediately made me think that someone, a French speaker in New York or London with an accent and people aren't sure about their their, uh, capacity to grasp everything, might have exactly the same experience with a broadly cultural left table full of writers or journalists where everyone just suddenly starts to talk about, you know, well, I would never let my daughter marry one or something like that. You say, Jesus Christ, is it the 1970s? And so I'm really convinced that the left is probably just about equally as racist as the racist right. There's no real difference, I think, but it is a, an extremely dangerous primal emotion that the left feels, which they're pains to, to disguise all the time, and it, it leads to nonsense. It leads to actually scapegoating. So. I I did an introduction for a book about 10 or 15 years ago. This photographer who took pictures of of wilder man. So like in Germany or France or Belgium or even England or Scotland, you get these guys dressed up in grasses and with a cow's head on. And they would be the kind of scapegoat for the village. And there'd be some little festival where they all got pelted. And that got the sins out of the village. And then everyone could fuck because it was going to be springtime afterwards. It was this, this, fantastic way of getting all the the kind of darker, more atavistic urges out of the self onto an object. And sometimes the scapegoat in those quasi or proto-religious terms was an actual goat that they would tie up and leave to starve or pelt to death. And everyone felt cleaner. And I think the left has a tendency to jump on what they see is not towing an anti-racist line while being themselves remarkably racist. The the Nice attack that I covered was an example of that. Race was the unignored phenomenon, and that impacted very badly on, on, on victims of that attack who were in fact themselves Arab, which was a very high proportion of the dead and injured. Yeah, I want to
2: ask you about the Nice attack and your powerful piece about it in a in a moment but i, I just want to one more thing on the fallout from charlie hebdo and the attack and i really agree with your case there that the meaning of anti-racism has changed and there's a staggering level of hypocrisy amongst um left-wingers who refer to themselves as anti-racist uh, and who oppose punching down in some situations but absolutely love it in others a, a perfect example of this I, I for me was i was speaking at a, a conference on freedom of speech in california a few years ago and um there was a session on charlie hebdo in the aftermath and uh, there was a cartoonist an american cartoonist there who condemned charlie hebdo for being prejudiced and xenophobic and islamophobic who then displayed some of his own cartoons to great acclaim in the room one of which showed trump voters with tombstone teeth and big fat guts and tattooed arms. I mean, the most caricatured white trash I'd ever seen. And they, I put my hand up and made the point about the the, the hypocrisy here, and, and they couldn't really understand what I was saying. It didn't get through to them. And of course, here in the UK, chav is not really said much anymore, but, but Gammon has kind of replaced it. And, and Gammon is a, is a slightly different constituency. It tends to be uh, red-faced, lower-middle-class, 55-year-old men rather than 18-year-old women in Burberry tracksuits with children, but it's underpinned by a say a similar kind of leftish bourgeois paternalism, I think. But I wanted to ask you, on that very point that you make there, I wanted to ask you if you think one of the problems with the response to what happened at Charlie Hebdo and subsequent events as well is that a lot of what poses as left-wing politics now is actually a form of racial paternalism, particularly this idea that Muslims need to be protected from offense, uh, which seems to me to be an extraordinary form of racial infantilization of Muslims, who surely we should trust to be equal to us when it comes to engaging in public discussion and, and so on.
1: Um, again, I hardly know how to reply because there's simply no debate. Of course, that's the case. I mean, just of course, that's the case. So, uh, America's great in one sense, in that it is such a melting pot that all racial minorities apart from Muslim, Arab, are, are reasonably well presented in terms of size of, of population. And w- what you see in America is there's an extraordinary hierarchy of respect. And respect is a new word that, that has come to replace um, forbearance, tolerance, compassion, empathy. It's all now respect. And respect doesn't mean what they think it means. Respect is a completely different thing. And you should have compassion, tolerance, uh, and empathy with everyone. But um, Black Americans are a smaller percentage of the population than Hispanics. And Hispanic um, self-assertion gets no play at all. I mean, none. Being a, a conscious Hispanic brother is a bad career move in in American media. No one wants it. If you're an Hispanic woman in the media, you're going to get a, a little more play, but only if you stay off the subject of your own ethnic origin, self assertion. And in France, uh, the one thing I, really, really amongst the proper left here, the one racial joke you can always tell. Is Asian jokes? People still do it all the time. Friends of mine do, and they think it's very funny. And that's because Asians are entitled to no uh, compassion, empathy, or tolerance because they're successful. Everywhere they go, they're successful. Second generation Asian is a is a, a synonym for success, financial, educational, political. So to be the focus of current identity politics respect is actually a, a kind of grievous insult. It's saying you 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 can't look after yourselves. We need we need to help you because we know better than you what what your predicament is. How to solve it? And I was always struck. I remember I can't remember why I did it, but at one point I became obsessed with the idea of writing a character who was a nice racist, and I asked all my This would have been about 15 years ago. And I asked all my white friends, do you know any nice racists? And they went, no, no, no. Literally every person of color, black, brown, or indifferent that I asked said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know a couple. Yeah, yeah. There's Bill. There's Jim. There's Susie. Every single one. And it wasn't just that they knew them. They were in their entourage. They were in their circle of friends or acquaintances. And that struck me as just... More in tune with real life. In, in France, there's a real thing with the middle class. If, if you're new in a city, I went to Marseille and was staying at this place that was like a cultural hub. There was a house for riders, and I was staying in it. And everyone said, Don't go round to the PMU, the kind of bedding shop cafe around the corner. It's incredibly racist. And Marseille is a, a racially tense city. And one morning, I didn't have any coffee, so I went round. And fell in love with this place. This was a place where it wasn't just you were allowed to smoke inside, you were compelled to smoke inside, where people were drinking terrible red wine at seven o'clock in the morning. And yes, it was a tiny bit racist, but it was also the only bar I'd been in in Marseille that was actually racially mixed. The only one that was a third white, a third black, and a third Arab. And everybody was mates. Everybody was slightly racist mates, but they were mates. And what those people in this place, these middle-class people had advised me away from, was not racism. It was the fact that this place was working class. That's what they didn't like about it. They didn't like the way people expressed themselves, you know, that, that a white guy could tell his Arab best mate an anti-Arab joke, and the guy would laugh. That's the real world. That's men. That's how men talk. That's how men get on. That, and, and they still do. It's not that what everybody on Twitter or in The Guardian is talking about has taken over the real world. This morning, there, there's, there's scaffolding outside my building. and I heard the guys working there who were, there were like two white guys and about 10 people who were not white. There were various things. And the things they were saying was so dreadful. I mean, so wow! It really stretched my French slang for how awful it was. And they were all laughing the bollocks off, of course.
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the clearest things about what is called anti-racism today is that it's often uh, it's often a means of moral distinction for upper-class leftists. Anti-racism really has become a way of them to morally distinguish themselves from working-class communities, from those who are seen as low information, regressive. um, They're not politically correct in their speech. They're not clipped in what they say. They're not careful in what they say. If you look at football matches, for example, nothing strikes dread into the English middle-class left more than a, a football match, at which people say all sorts of... Crazy. I mean, the out-and-out racism that plagued British football for a few years in the 70s and the 80s, that has, for the most part, disappeared. But people are still vulgar, and they say horrible things and chant horrible things, and it fills guardianistas with absolute horror that this can happen. So it it does seem that you have a situation these days where anti-racism has become a tool of kind of moral distinction for sections of the upper classes, while at the same time they can maintain their own often sometimes racist views in their world in which most people are white and the only time they encounter a Bulgarian immigrant is when he's fixing their toilet or whatever.
1: Oh yeah, almost, yes, almost exclusively, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I used to think that it was that distinction, these people are less sophisticated than me and are going to say something very uncomfortable and sound like Enoch Powell back in the day. But actually, I think it's they're covering themselves in a a way that's more primal. Because I think if the average identity politics lefty had a window into their soul when they're lying in bed at night just before they go to sleep, I think we'd be horrified by what they're thinking of to calm themselves down. And, And the greatest thing I saw last year before last was when the English football team were taking a knee. And the cameras would obsessively scroll along the people ah, shouting abuse and doing wank signs, and, and I remember that I fucking nearly shit myself with laughter. It was it was such a guy thing, doing such a working class thing to do these skin headed white fat guys, and then four black guys at the end giving it loads as well because yeah. of course they would. Absolutely, of course you would, and that is not conjugable. In, in in Guardian morality, even now in Twitter morality, because uh, comedy does not exist. Those guys were having a brilliant time, and they were going, I hope the camera catches me. And it did. Absolutely.
2: And you know, shock horror, if you turn a, a football match into an opportunity for um, a moral lecture to the masses, the masses are going to respond with two, a two-fingered salute or, uh, or some piss-taking.
1: Particularly an American moral lesson. Yeah, that's right. In a complete, in you know, football, you can't get more English. Yeah. So it had no place. And, and why, why are white footballers doing it for a start, you know? It's kind of weird. The, the the whole idiom is is very very mixed up and incoherent. If you want to be non racist, don't be addicted to black people or brown people. That's very simple. It's incredibly easy. And also, I I, I was thinking last year, it, it struck me suddenly that I know exactly how racist I am. I'm aware. I could give it a number between one and a hundred, and I know. To what degree that's changed over the years, whether up or down or stayed the same? I know exactly how racist I am, so I'm guessing everybody does. <laughs> Literally, exactly. You can't change it. You can't sway it. So why is everyone so keen, without saying their number out loud, to to you know put on this carapace of of moral probity and excellence. It's uh, worrying.
2: Yeah, yeah, I want to know their number. I think that's what we need to ask them. What's, what's your number on on the racism scale? That's that's the information we need. <laughs> um, th- that kind of brings me on to, I want to ask you about the things we can talk about and the things we can't talk about, or, or, or really the things we are willing to talk about and the things we're not willing to talk about. So your mention of football there reminded me of the absolutely surreal fact that English footballers were still taking the knee for a black man who was murdered uh, 4,000 miles away in Minneapolis, while at the same time, police forces and security forces in Iran were massacring hundreds of people, hundreds of people. And I just thought, where's where's the knee for that? Which is kind of the wrong question, because I just think everyone should stop taking the knee. But where's the concern for that? Where is the discussion about that? And and it, it kind of made me think about you wrote this really incredible piece for the Guardian towards the end of last year, and I did want to come on to that, and I wanted to come on the whole to the whole issue of what we what we remember and what we don't remember. And so you wrote about the Nice atrocity of 2016. People will remember, or they might not remember. Actually,
1: they they probably won't.
2: Yeah, the the 14th of July Nice attack. Uh, a 19 ton truck was driven by a man through a crowd of revelers, and 86 people were killed, including 15 children. I mean, by any measure, that is a gruesome historical event. And you wrote a piece for The Guardian uh, in October last year. You were in the courtroom where people are on trial for um, assisting the truck driver in some way or or, uh, allegedly doing so. Um, And the point you make is that the courtroom was largely empty. People weren't really paying much attention. It wasn't being talked about. Certainly outside of France, here in the UK, I didn't see anything about this trial until I read your piece. Um, just give us a, sen- a sense of what, what that trial entailed and why you think there was that uh, that culture of silence around it.
1: Well, I, I will tell you what the trial was, what it represented. But I, I would say first, why there are three reasons why it wasn't featured. Um, the first reason is because it wasn't Apollo 11, it was Apollo 12. So there was... Charlie Hebdo, so there were some famous people, and it was the first big one, so, oh, wow, millions of people in the street. Then there was the Bataclan, which was an exercise in cruelty, in attacking football, restaurants, a concert hall, in attacking youth and beauty and fun and diversion, superbly um, religious extremism in essence. And they, they made a big splash. They were huge events. And then Nice came along. And it was much too intimate because Nice, it's not guns or bombs. It's a lorry. It's an everyday. It's like being killed by a hamburger. It's its so banal. It's so quotidian. But also, it's the end of a firework display. Everyone's shuffling off on this very, very wide esplanade. And where you are is in, in the region of parental fear. People always talk about you have a baby. And you feel this wave of love. Wow, the love. Oh, my God, the love. That's bullshit. What you feel immediately is fear. This thing is going to die. How am I going to stop this thing dying? And then 10 minutes later, you're thinking, oh, there's this other way this thing can die. How am I going to stop that? So it's weeks, months, years of catastrophism, fearing the worst. A niece where you turn your head for an instant and your baby isn't there anymore. Is right there in that primal animal parental fear. So it touches us too deeply. Uh, people were snobbish about Nice because Nice is kind of Scotland with sunshine. They're all kind of yokels or they're all rich um, racists. And of course, there weren't any rich racists there because it's a firework display. It's free. It was the working class. Uh, like... 20% were foreigners, and half of the rest were working class, and half of them were Arab. And they died in horrifying numbers, and they were very un- unlucky in how many children who died were Arab. Significant numbers, and all all of the youngest children, practically. So those are reasons that, that people didn't want to treat it, because it's really horrible. I've spent years turning over the page if I saw a story about some awful parents somewhere murdering their child it was always the same photograph of the child dirty face not in some kind of cancel flat looking a bit cockeyed and you just your heart stopped in dismay, and you think i'm not going to read that i'm going to move on and then you avoid the papers for two or three days because you know that story will be there we don't like reading about dead children for very good reasons it's, it's not very nice everybody all the journalists All the victims, all the lawyers during that trial and afterward it started drinking like fishes. I I wasn't really a drinker. I've been drinking four or five beers a night since then. You couldn't get through it otherwise. Everybody got sick at some point where they had to take a week off because they couldn't go on because you're listening. I I listened to a 10-year-old girl who had written Uh, a testimony about how guilty she felt about making her parents go to the sweet shop stand, which is very famous in this thing because it was covered in children. Obviously, it's a sweet stall. And you can see the guy sees it and steers towards it because he thinks, brilliant, a wheelchair and loads of brands. This will be fantastic. So you don't want that stuff in your head. I I don't want it in my head. It, It had a profound effect on me. I'm scared to go to bed because I'm still dreaming about it.
2: That's why your coverage of it was so important. And I think that Guardian piece you wrote was so important because you brought uh, precisely some of those thoughts you've just outlined there and, and some of the reasons for why it wasn't being talked about or confronted, you brought that to a broader audience, which I think was really important. And I, I, I did want to ask you, so there, there, is the, there are many components to this kind of amnesia, I suppose, this this complicit, consensual amnesia that people seem to engage in, in relation to the Nice attack. Um, There's the class element. There's the fact that there were a lot of children who were killed. It's just, it's too much to think about, but I wanted to ask you if there's a political component as well. I mean, it might be different in France. You've already just outlined there that Nice was like Apollo 12. So people did talk about uh, Charlie Hebdo, of course, and the Bataclan massacre and the other massacres that took place on that same night. Um, But do you think there's there's an element where there's a reluctance to talk about some of these things because of who the perpetrators are and because of what the ideology is? I remember a few years ago, I think it was on the first anniversary of um, the Charlie Hebdo massacre, you made a point in one of your Guardian pieces about 9-11, which I thought was really interesting. You said, we haven't forgotten it, but we don't remember it either. And I just thought that that was a very good description, actually, because everyone knows 9-11, everyone knows the images but they don't think about them and they don't remember them it doesn't uh, you kind of ha- it has to be forced back into your mind on every anniversary and you say oh yeah that tower coming down was crazy and then you go back to your normal life what do you think explains that is it something to do with the fact that this is uh, these are islamist phenomena that there is this um people don't forget but they don't remember
1: well to deal with the last point first the People were very happy talking about Charlie in terms of um, the identities or supposed political aspirations, which don't actually exist, of, of the attacks um, in the case of Charlie and the Bataclan. I think what was more disturbing about Nice was that it was franchise terrorism, because this guy was nobody's al-Qaeda guy. This guy wasn't in what the French call Daesh, ISIS he was an arsehole. He was just this loser arsehole who beat his wife and pissed and shat on the bedroom floor and, um, you know, sold some drugs, but not very well. Um, he was ex- intensely anti-Arab. He used to pretend to be Jewish to try to pick up girls or men. Um, he was just a, a tosser, really like it was notable during the trial that there was an authentic kind of hard man. And drug dealer, and they're unmistakable um, in all cultures. If you've ever, if you've ever ever met a drug dealer, you know what drug dealers are like all over the world. They're all the same, in, in a great way, not in a bad way. Um, and he described this guy as kind of like a like a wannabe, a loser, and with real contempt. And he was franchising terrorism, so he his life was totally shit. And he got in a lorry and killed a load of people and attached it onto this theory. Um, ISIS and al-Qaeda had fuck all to do with it. It was generated by him and his, his little network of loser friends. It was not part of an overarching political or military strategy. It was just a dick. And, and what's powerful about this form of political violence is that it's franchisable by losers, by arseholes who are nihilistic, perhaps suicidal, but definitely self-hating. Um, but the, the, the prompt to ignore, I wrote a, I wrote a piece in Charlie Hebdo one month after the attack going, wow, we've all forgotten the nice thing. Was it, was it me or were 16 kids killed? More than were killed in 9-11. And it's a kind of Belfast thing. I come from Belfast. I went through all that stuff and, you know, And you developed a rhythm for how you felt about things. So a bomb would go off and literally what you'd go, that sounds like Castle Street to me. No, no, it's further down. That's what you would say with people around you. That's all it was. And then you go back to your business. It was normal, it was every day. And if four people were killed or eight people were killed, that might have a bigger impact. But the way it was absorbed became practiced and niece slipped into that as well where a few a few weeks later no one really cared and i, I think why people don't think about these things literally do the exercise it, next time you get 5 minutes spare pick somebody who jumped out of the towers at 911 or pick one of the fucking kids in niece. or what you know one of the hapless kind of people with bad musical taste who went to the bataclan in, you know and And think about it for a minute and a half properly. you will freak out totally. It's not. It's not livable. You absolutely your heart rate starts going, your blood pressure skyrockets. You freak out. I've done it a few times with things that didn't concern me, and it's it's almost unendurable. And you talked about Iran, and I was very depressed about that whole Iran thing because. I thought, right, it's a little bit in the papers at the minute. We did a special edition. We got threatened by Hezbollah. It was, all oh, wow, wonderful. And I thought, six weeks, no one's going to give a toss. And now we don't. We don't give a toss, and they're killing teenagers. We didn't give a toss when they were killing teenage girls, and now they're killing teenage boys as well. And we don't care.
2: Yeah, I think the one of the points you made there about um... – the pathetic nature or the troubled nature of the niece attacker and how that might influence, um, how people see this event. I think that's, that's a good point. Uh, it brings to mind, um, what, uh, the the mother of Tio van Gogh. So Tio van Gogh was the Dutch filmmaker murdered by an Islamist in, um, 2004, 2005. Um, she made a comment, um, along the lines of what makes this even worse is that he was murdered by such a loser. And, um, you know, one of those um, petty criminals, drug sellers, drug dealers who falls into the kind of Islamist crowd because it's another gang or it's another thing to do. But, uh, but I did want to ask you about um, the left and their treatment of Islamist terrorism. And again, I really do appreciate that France could be different here to the UK um because one of the problems in the UK is that there is almost a kind of institutionalized amnesia after an attack takes place. You know, after the Manchester Arena bombing, we were literally all singing, don't look back in anger. I mean, that was the culture. Don't talk about it. Don't look back. Move on. Forget about it. And the thing that really brought this to my mind was in August 2017, if you remember, firstly, there was the Charlottesville car attack where some far-right moron drove a car into some lefties and uh, one woman was killed and uh, around 30 people were, were injured. Uh, and the left turned it into a huge symbolic event and they still treat it as such. Five days later in Barcelona, an Islamist drove a car through a crowd of people and killed 13, including a child, and injured more than 100. I guarantee you, you could ask 100 people on the streets of Britain if they remember that attack and they don't and that will include left-wingers who w- would consider themselves socially aware. How would you explain something like that? Is there is it only certain forms of neo-fascism that the left is willing to get angry about? And there are other forms where it turns a blind eye because it thinks it might be a bit un-PC to, to dig
1: down into what's going on there. Well, I'm a lefty. I know you're not, particularly. Though I, I do ask myself, where would you have been? What? How would we have seen you in the 90s? Where would you have been on... The, I, I think I think that about Andrew Doyle, about all those people. Would they've been seen as right wing, particularly? Um, I'm not sure that's about a lefty thing. Some of it is. Some of it about the, the prevalence and supremacy of identity politics before all else, before gay rights, before feminism, before that squashes everything. But also, it's about a bourgeois sense of decency. So these things are indecent. And talking about losers is indecent. In in the Nice trial, there was a very important moment when one of the witnesses was talking about anger. Well, you know, the guy had lost five members of his family in a second and a half. They were dead, five members. So he's a little tense. We can understand that. But the president of the court, the judge basically, said, there is no place for hatred in this courtroom. And I thought, Two things, you're a dick, but also that's a great thing to say. That's an absolutely great thing to say. Two days later, there is the father of a two and a half year old girl who died, his mother died, and his 11 year old nephew died all at the same time. And this guy said, So you said that you said there was no place for hatred here. Well, I hate these people. I hate them all. I will always hate them forever. If I could do something to them, I would. And he went on. He was like a beat poet. And it was allowed because the guy was Arab. So you're not going to interrupt him and, and give him a moral lesson because that would be bad. What the judge had said was still valid. But... It was invalidated by the fact he's not going to do it to an Arab guy. And it, after that, it was noticeable that all the Arab victim witnesses really unbuttoned. They really went for it. The only people to really talk about um, how bodies were robbed immediately after the attack. I mean, seconds after the attack, people descended and started robbing bodies. I mean, absolutely horrifying. Like I've like a a fictional event, nearly. It's so grotesque, you can't think about it. And the only people to talk about it were Arabs, because most of the kids doing it were Arabs. Well, all of the kids doing it were Arabs, they say. So they felt that freedom and that liberty. And we're always talking about uh, freedom expression, and I really saw it operate there. And, and they were doing it with the absolute... Built-in assumption. I'm saying about this, saying this, about these little Arab shitheads here, not saying that all Arabs are shitheads, obviously. I am one. And that that liberty, that and that presumption was adamantine. Everyone understood it. It was completely accepted. And it meant that the discourse was more honest and real and brought up a subject that had been almost completely ignored: the Robin of the of the bodies some of the stuff was then put online and like um for sale like a couple of days afterwards
2: yeah yeah it's interesting what you say there about um the un- the unwillingness to talk about certain things or or some groups some constituencies have a greater leeway to talk about problems than than others do because of the i guess the identitarian impulse to accord moral worth to people's views depending on where they come from or what they look like and so on um, it's interesting what you say there about right and left. I mean, spiked considers itself a left-wing publication, while also recognizing that that has become a pretty meaningless term in the modern era. I mean, what is it to be left now? Is it is it to be a, a, a cancel culture freak who wants to stop someone like Kathleen Stock from speaking in public? So it's like you know what what does it mean? Um, but but so that's that's a that's a slightly uh, separate discussion. But I I want to in relation to the forgetting or the not remembering, which I guess are, are actually two different things, so we should be accurate, but maybe the not remembering. I did want to ask you about Samuel Paty. I, I found that I found that such a depressing incident. I mean, for so many reasons. Firstly, of course, because a, a school teacher was murdered and decapitated. But also the response to it. I wrote a piece here, a, a quite an angry piece, saying, look, a public servant just across the channel in our oldest frenemy of France um has been slaughtered in the streets and there was virtually no commentary here from the political class certainly uh, and also from lots of the commentariat as well um i took part in a uh, a solidarity gathering outside the french embassy in london there was an infinitesimally small number of people it was just depressing um what was the impact there i'm guessing it was it was very different is it and I know there's I think there's lots of trials going on or there's lots of discussion about what happened what, what's the culture around around that now
1: uh, well uh, one test is do people know his name and yes they do uh, people don't know the name of the 15 year old girl who was uh, murdered and burnt to death for being a Muslim girl who was filmed basically being raped she'd been going out with a guy and he got a gang raped and then That was bad, and she got pregnant. So it was time to stab her and burn her alive. And uh, the person who did it got two and a half years, and no one knows her name. I mean, there's just been an appeal uh, in in the courts, and the the newspapers were at pains to to remind people who she was. That should have been a name we all have engraved in our memory. But, yeah, they know Paddy's name. I, I know a couple of the lawyers who were... Um, representing Parti civil um plaintiffs during the the trial are also representing the paddy family during this trial and they're saying in a way it's going to be worse it's more directly into the heart of the french state it's about secularism it's about education it's about what is happening in schools now there's a reversal of an historic trend in France in that young people are much more racist and right-wing than old people. Much more. It's It's a shocker. And the French schools, which are wonderfully well integrated in both racial, to some degree, economic terms, during primary school and just after, when they get to 14, 15, they start to separate really sharply. So the people who've been friends since they were five or six years old are now in different groups. And older people don't know about this unless they have children that age. They have no idea that this is going on. And it's producing uh, remarkable effects and remarkable tensions for the teaching profession. So I think this is going to be like lancing a boil. This trial is going to be very, very uncomfortable for friends. Well, because it, it... in, in a sense, thinking of the girl who was murdered, for example, it's an absolutely horrifying story, and it's a story of pure misogyny. And it happens in this case to be Islamic misogyny, which in its current iteration is an award winner. I mean, it's really good at misogyny. She came from an area where girls can't really leave the house on their own if they're not wearing a scarf, and... Um, where if they want to have a cup of coffee, they have to leave the neighbourhood, get a bus, go twenty kilometres to a, a kind of mega store with, um, you know, kind of Nike and all those kinds of shops, because there they can sit down on a cafe terrace without being called a whore. And they live their lives like this until maybe they're twenty-one and they can get away. And to, to in order to be left-wing about that, you need to be critical of Islam which is doing most of the, the donkey work there. It's also just about guys being guys. But, wow, if feminism is a, a sea that stops at the Islam's edge, then it, it's no use at all. If you're not defending these girls who li- who are imprisoned and who increasingly because of pornography and, and social media and cell phones can have their lives destroyed in in a couple of weeks because of some momentary indiscretion or something that doesn't even count as an indiscretion apart from in a place that's so oppressive. There was a girl who committed suicide uh, the week before last, and the girl who had caused her to commit suicide with a campaign of harassment on social media was then on social media boasting about it after having had her phone removed by a judge. (laughs) It's... I mean, for the first time ever, really, I think young people are in a completely different world. You know, when I was 17, I wasn't sending dick pics to anyone. I wasn't getting anything like that in return. But these these kids have all got parts of their bodies in their cloud. And it, yeah. if you're a Muslim girl living in that world, it's a, it's a circle you can't square or a square you can't circle. It's unlivable and very dangerous. And nobody cares.
2: Yeah and I think you're right absolutely right that if feminism stops where Islam starts then it's not worth the paper it's written on because you know are we defending the rights of women or are we not defending the rights of women and that's the question and I think the um it's it, it's a I think that's a good example of how slippery a phrase like Islamophobia can be now I do think there is anti-muslim bigotry in the uk i'm sure there's anti-muslim bigotry in france as well and that's and that's a that's a specific issue that definitely does need to be discussed and addressed i al- always like to keep it separate from the idea of islamophobia which crosses the line from defending communities from racial abuse and harassment which is absolutely society's role to do into you know forbidding criticism of certain practices certain Uh, religious ideas which is just censorious
1: we need to do the christopher hitchens thing of reminding ourselves it's okay to say you don't have to say it to someone's face but to think that their religion is bullshit because their religion no matter what it is is clearly bullshit it's nonsense and find me find me a liberal generous human-sized religion that respects everyone and is against everything mean and unkind that isn't homophobic. Find me one of those, do you know what, I'll fucking join it. Of course it's bullshit. We should be Islamophobic, we should be uh, Christophobic. And Jesus, the weird thing about contemporary Jewish culture is that in a sense the Torah, in terms of all forms of social politics, is almost worse than the Quran. It's psychotically bad. And yet, they were the first culture to uh, give rights of inheritance to women, because Jews immediately started criticising the text. It's not like the Hadith. It's yeah, this doesn't really work out for us. We'll we'll find a, a solution. And Islam, which is which is basically a kind of mirrored photocopy of Christianity and Judaism as it is anyway, has stuck to this absolutist nonsensical kind of prohibitive morality which has no place it has no place a hundred years ago never mind now it's nonsense
2: If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spike supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spike supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spike supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse this is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone anywhere can read us and listen to us we're incredibly grateful for your generosity if you don't give to Spiked yet now is the perfect time to start Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike Supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Well, that comes comes back to a point you made earlier, which I thought was incredibly pertinent, which is that there's a difference between tolerance and respect. And a, a tolerant society... Um, permits people to practice their religion. It permits people to live freely, to think freely. But it doesn't force us to respect their religion or to respect what they do. And I think it's important to to always maintain that distinction. Tolerance is about freedom. The freedom of the person to practice their religion, the freedom of the other person to criticize their religion. Whereas that kind of culture of enforced respect is very much about siphoning off their religion from criticism and silencing the people who would wish to criticize it. And that's just wrong.
1: You talked about Kathleen Stock earlier, and in in a sense, she's a perfect example of this this definitional dichotomy, where if we're using respect in the '90s rap sense of you owe me respect just by turning up, yeah, you get that. But even if it's still nonsensical, but if if you, I mean, I had the pleasure of having dinner with Stocky in Paris, and it immediately struck me that because you know she's the she's Nearly the ultimate Nazi for a uh, trans rights activist. She's really shit at being a Nazi. She's the worst fucking Nazi ever. Um, um, that, that funny um cartoon magazine from Newcastle used to have a, a strip called The Pathetic Sharks, where they had crap sharks with no teeth that didn't scare anyone. <laughs> That's what if she's your Heinrich Himmler, you have some you have some problems. And and To refuse to acknowledge basically does a preamble for almost everything she says, which is, of course, I support trans rights. Of course, uh, they are protected, and I want to see them protected. And I would never dream of misgendering someone if that would upset them. And, you know, she is what you want in every way. And then goes, but, you know, lesbians don't like dicks. Oh, I thought thought we all agreed on that. Yeah.
2: Yeah shock horror, lesbians don't want to sleep with men. Who could believe it? But it's. It, I think it's it, that word phobic is, to me, it's just so Orwellian, because transphobia now largely just means believing in biological sex and believing that women sometimes need their own sex-based rights. Islamophobia, we've talked about. There's now this term hijab-phobia, hijabophobia which is um, the Huffington Post described it as hostility to the hijab. And it does make you think, if you think, think about something like Iran, for example, and the reason why young people in the UK and other parts of the West didn't offer much solidarity, well, you think, well, they've been schooled in respect for the hijab. And they've seen the Women's March in the United States use a woman in a hijab as this empowering symbol. And they've been told that it's phobic to criticise aspects of Islam, so they must look at something like the revolt in Iran and they're just wordless. They have nothing to say. There's nothing they can say that won't break the speech code of Islamophobia. So it it shows you how um, problematic censorship can be in terms of social progress and offering solidarity to people who are fighting for social progress.
1: It it proves the, the, the logical corruption in a certain kind of intersectionality so all of the women who are the most extreme on hijab issue that I know who are really frothing at the mouth and enraged and will not, if you try to say, but they will tear your head off, they're all Arab or, or Iranian, of course, of course, because they've lived it, they didn't like it, and they know it's bullshit. Um, I think that, that even the word phobia is, is very badly used because a phobia is an uncontrollable fear for which you are not responsible. People who are very, very scared of spiders don't want to be scared of spiders. Maybe they like animals. Maybe they don't want to kill spiders, but they're very, very scared of them. It's not their fault. So if you say Islamophobia or something like that, you say, well, you have this fear that's not your fault. So the discourse is, is literally banal from the start. As soon as you start using terms like these, you are it's a hostage to fortune. Oh, well hey, if I'm just phobic, I should go and see a doctor. I'll be fine. It's nonsensical. Yeah. Uh,
2: Okay, Robert, I have one more question for you. We've slightly overrun time-wise. I just wanted to ask you about this. It's it's probably too big a question, but I want to ask you about the state of the, the intellectual state of France, because one of the images that some of us outside of France have is that for all the problems you've just been talking about, for all the issues that you write about in relation to France, um, it, it, some of us do see it as a kind of last bastion against American style political correctness. You'll sometimes read these stories of French professors saying, no, 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 we don't want wokeness on our campus. Or, or you certainly will read about French intellectuals who seem much more willing than British intellectuals to say confronting things about Islamist extremism, for example. I think about when Salman Rushdie was attacked last year, it was really striking to me that Emmanuel Macron, who I'm not a fan of, but his uh, comment was certainly much more forceful and um, and good than Boris Johnson's, uh, than Keir Starmer's. Keir Starmer took hours and hours to say anything at all, which is really disturbing, given that Rushdie is a British citizen and, and a knight of the realm. Um, is that is it right for us to think that? Is there still that, um disregard in certain french circles for what they would see as a, a west a, a, an anglo-american political correctness or do you think that's withering
1: too um everything withers everything is is subject to the the emotional moral and political weather um and people get older and forget things that came before um what what france has is two things one France kind of knows in its essence that every single era has thought itself modern. 400 years ago, people thought they were very modern. 200 years ago, the same. We're so modern. Look at those guys from 15 years ago. What assholes. And that leads to a continuation in the culture and a, and a consistency that's agreeable. It CAMS the kind of the spurts of not extremism, you know, May 1968 was was quite an extreme, you know, very nice middle class movement. Um, but it it stops fashions, you know, fads. So the trans thing has come and it's come fully formed, it hasn't been born and developed, it's come already adult, and it's not fitting in very well because all the you know, people are calling um, uh, feminist les terfs and the calling uh, anti-prostitution campaigners les terfs and you know people just going well you're really your massive massive Uh so yeah it's a little mitigated but on the other hand a couple of weeks ago I was standing outside my local bar having a cigarette and these young guys walked past, and I was a bit tipsy. One of them went in to buy cigarettes. I was talking to the other two. They were very handsome and well-dressed. And I went, Jesus, I wish I was, what are you, like 25? And then, yeah, yeah, 25. I, I wish out. I yeah. And I said, but, you know, at your age, I'd written a book. Where's your book? And the guy pulled out of his pocket a copy of De Montalant, a French philosopher who is not for the lighthearted. <laughs> and you think, what are the chances of that happening in London? The guy would be attacked. <laughs> he would be, you know, somebody would beat him up. And you know, you, I, I'd see seventeen-year-olds with their faces buried in Balzac while walking along the street, and you worry about them crossing the road. That's still there. It's a little bit influenced by, um, like in Britain, by c- coming from a good family, having a bit of money, getting a good school, but it's nearly as likely to be a taxi driver. I had a taxi driver who was reading my favorite Zola novel, L'Argent. And I just thought, you're a genius. I want to live here. It was one of the reasons why I moved here, was that taxi driver. Just casually, oh, yeah, 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 it's pretty good. So it's it keeps, some of it in resisting America, it doesn't resist Britain in the same way. They're very, they have exactly the same attitude to the British as the British have about them. It's kind of half resentment, half admiration, and but they do resist Americanism. And they like, like complaining, just like the British. But they're like people who are inconvenient. So a uh, Kathleen Stock in, in France would be, in fact, she would be, no, she wouldn't be admired because she's much too moderate. They would want something much, <laughs> much sharper. We, they would never be in that position with what she says is seen as extreme. Because when French people go extreme, they go the full distance. It's not just by saying, "Oh yeah, lesbians don't like that." But people just go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I've heard that." Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Robert, thank you very much. My pleasure.